And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read, but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello! Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm I'm Maggie, and today we have a special guest. Hi, I'm Kate Rowell. So this is Kate, and we are reading today, in between our Little Woman book episodes, we're going to be reading Anne of Green Gables, and we invited Kate on because this is one of Kate's favorite childhood books, and also she is basically Anne. (laughs) Yeah, in everything but physicality, yes, yeah. So we, what we do, usually when we start a new book, is we give a summary, and I have one kind of written out just because I was afraid and you guys can add on to it in terms of plot points or something. If it's not good enough. Wait, Harmony, should we maybe introduce them to Kate first before we dive into the book? I'm but a lonely orphan girl of no importance. So as you all know, Harmony loves icebreakers. So yet again, we're going to do some icebreakers. We've got 15, we've got quick questions for you, Kate. Rapid fire, 15 seconds for each question. Harmony, do you want a time or do you want to ask the questions? I'll do the timing. Here, wait. It's going to take me a hot second. I'm like, I did a lot of editing. Let me know when you're ready. All right, I'm ready. Ready, set, go. Three things you find most romantical. The wind, anytime, anywhere. Uh, A very lush, rainy day where the plants are all happy and reading an excellent book outdoors. Very nice. Uh, Where have you lived that has the greatest scope for the imagination and why? I would have to say the Berkshires in Massachusetts. Por qué? Because I also find mountains romantical. And while some people may not call the Berkshire Hills mountains, firstly, they were once larger than the Himalayas. Uh, Secondly, (laughs) um, there's a lot of green, there's a lot of dense forest, and you just kind of walk around the building and there's a mountain. And I just think that that's, that's lovely. What's your favorite book? Mm. Broken Earth Trilogy, maybe. The Water Knife by Paolo Bacigalup. Name three of your favorite book characters. Don't know. I don't have. I, I, I don't have. <laughs> is that is that rude? <laughs> to my favorite book. No, you're all good. Okay. All right, Harmony. I officially give you permission to summarize. Can I give a little bit about my background, or no? Yeah, tell us about your background. What does Kate do? We know Kate from college also, just as other context for our listeners. No, lived with for four years. Oh, you know. So I am, like Maggie, a museum professional. And I specifically work in constructing and developing museum exhibitions. Ooh. Would you call that a romantical job? I would at some time, at some point. Others, it is a deeply unromantical job, and you have to, you know, deal with carpentry and things like that. But some people may call those things romantical in themselves, so maybe. Okay. All right. Wonderful. Let's get into the <laughs> Okay. So, a middle-aged brother and sister in 1910s Royal Canada try to adopt an orphan boy to help with farm work. Instead, they're mistakenly given an ugly red-headed girl with a penchant for daydreaming and a tongue that never slows. Anne, spelled with an E because it's more distinguished, soon endears herself to her adopted parents and the people of Avalonia. Um, the town in... Is it Avalon? Avonlea. Avonlea. The town in which she came to stay. I'm excited that we got to read this book because it was super duper fun for me. And I really love Anne as a character. And as soon as I like read the first few chapters, I was like, oh God, this really is Kate. 
And part of that is because Anne is like this adorable little girl who's constantly daydreaming and going on flights of fancy and she's like super creative and she's also constantly talking and she doesn't know necessarily how to be diplomatic in the beginning. I feel especially seen but also attacked because we met in college. And not as an 11, when I was an 11 year old child, but please do continue. Well, that's one of the things though, like Anne does grow up in the book, right? And she learns how to not do that. But that reminded me a lot of Kate because Kate is one of my only friends who has also been diagnosed with ADD. That's something we share. And as soon as I picked up this book, I kind of knew it because I had known Kate before and she told me this was a character with ADD in the past. But as soon as I picked it up, I was like, oh, I really see this, this child definitely has ADD. I have to tell you that the moment I read the portion when I first read and also rereading (laughs) Blast from the Past, it was a moment when I was reading uh, the portion where Anne is traveling back in in the little buggy in the carriage with Matthew and she's just talking his ear off and asking him questions and Matthew just goes, well now I'm not sure. And I never thought about that silence. And that's exactly how I was with my mother (laughs) growing up in the car, just going, Mom, you ever thought about this? Mom, isn't this wonderful? Mom, have you ever thought about this thing? And she's just like, no. (laughs) But, you know, quietly kind of indoors. And so that was the very first moment where I thought, oh, look, a kindred spirit, as I would say. Yes, we're also going to use um, anisms all throughout this episode if you have not caught on. So, <laughs> Maggie's unhappy with a capital U, but that's okay. Maggie, what was your initial impressions of this book and this character? Hard to say because this is also a reread for me, and I also guess it's technically the third time that I've read it because I read it, I think, for the first time when I was in fourth grade. The second time I was probably in like high school, and then I finished it about half an hour ago as I think almost everyone in this little group did so like it's hard to say I don't I don't actually remember a ton from the first two times that I read it I just kind of remembered reading it and enjoying it so like my first impressions of the book I think aren't as strong as Kate's are or anything you know like I remember liking it I remember watching one of the movie adaptations and also enjoying that but like I never super connected with Anne or anything so like I think that for me as a kid while I knew I liked the book it wasn't a very strong kindred spirit moment you know. I think I think for me, I also, just to monopolize the conversation really quick, was attracted to it for a number of reasons, not only Anne's kind of similarity to myself, but also was like the historical setting, which at the time was contemporary. So, you know, big history person. So that was, of course, a draw. And the setting, of course, it's beautiful. But also it was something where you felt like as a young kid, you were reading a classic. And that's a thing that I think a lot of us didn't do except for maybe Little Women until probably more like fifth grade, fourth grade, fifth grade. And so if you read it a little earlier than that, you were like, aha, I'm reading a classic. And it feels good as a kid. It's a little precocious and like feeling themselves a little bit in the reading area, even if they're not in any other area. So that was definitely part of it. I understand. I thought I had read Anne of Green Gables when I was a child, but I don't know if I ever did. I think maybe I was just so familiar with the character, or maybe I had heard another one of the books, and I never really remembered it. So they also had a PBS special, or maybe not even special, but yes, Harmony's Nodding. They had a PBS show that was animated. That was also Anna Green Gables, and PBS was my thing because we had no cable. So that just kind of doubled down on the Anne exposure for me as a child. I enjoyed it a lot as an adult, though. Did you guys, like, reading it again get that? Okay. I was a little worried for Maggie because we're also reading Little Woman and this is structured kind of similarly in that each each story is like, each chapter is like a separate story. And I know that's not Maggie's favorite generally. 
Dude, the whole fucking time, I kept thinking, thank God I'm not reading Little Woman right now. Because I've been reading Little Woman for, like, four weeks at this point, and I can't do it. And today I was like, oh, fuck, like, I really, I have to sit down, I have to read Anne of Green Gables. Usually, Harmony and I both read things way ahead of time, but I had a strange week. I was on the East Coast, so I had to read it all the day, and I was so delighted. I thought it was funny. The writing was great. I didn't mind the whole kind of short story arc, because I felt like I could personally see, like, a light at the end of the tunnel so yeah for me i was also worried about it because i was like i haven't been doing super hot with rereading the the children's literature as an adult but this one really did it for me okay good i'm glad i'm not the only one (laughs) no you are not okay so there were some things that i picked up in this book so we kind of talked a little bit about why we chose this one i think it works nicely in between our little woman one and it's a nice small book so I think we can take it up with a discussion. Also, we have Kate here who can talk about it with us. So that's exciting. Did anyone else want to elaborate? It was a very practical decision. We won't lie about it. Yeah, just convenient on all sides. Pretty much. Yes. And of course, when you asked me, you're like, will you be on our podcast? I was like, yes, I'll be on your podcast because I love podcasts. So I was like, and I'm Phoebe Judge and this is criminal. Like I was ready. (laughs) ready to be here you might be our first guest that well i don't know about joe honey i haven't asked you might have been the first guest though that actually listens to podcasts i don't even listen to podcasts i'm half host and i don't i'm not a podcast person despite all my efforts and all my subtle not subtle pushing of them in college yeah it's okay i understand i feel you So I want to talk a little bit more about Anne as a character and why you guys think, okay, so first of all, is she a good role model for little girls? And if so, why? And if not, why? Because I now having finished the entire book, I think she is in part, at least. Yeah, I think in part is a pretty solid description of is she a good role model for kids? I don't know. I think there's something to be said for... representations of ADHD kids in literature in a way that's not ridiculing them or you know making it something of a fault not that that was something that of course Ellen Montgomery was aware of at the time but uh contemporarily it's really helpful when you are crazy and you know not to say that people with ADHD are crazy I'm just maybe crazy you know kind of when you're different yeah you're different and you know you're different and you're kind of bouncing around all the time you know not just physically but in your head (laughs) and you're just spouting these prosaic just sentences at adults and they're like oh okay I think it's something that heartens you but I also think that there are certain things about Anne's character, the way she's written, that might be kind of part of a temporal trend, a trend at that time when it was written, probably about glorifying protagonists and young ladies. Having faults wasn't really a thing that was accepted. So having an endearing protagonist meant not having a certain complexity of character, I think in some ways even like the gothic novels maggie can school me on this but i think it's you have to be a certain level of acceptable young lady with all the right characteristics in the end to be a character at this time and that in itself is not always the best i think for young kids and specifically young girls who feel that sometimes if they identify with a character or they admire a character they must emulate all parts of that character or be associated with all parts and not being able to see your flaws reflected in a way that's accepted might not be the best thing. But you can't have everything in one meal. Yeah, I really agree. I think that lots of things that make Anne only a great role model in part are very much about the time that this was written. And like, not to say that in 1908, girls didn't deserve to have great role models all the time, but even certain things about this book are like still kind of radical for the time period, especially the discussions about religion and the fact that like Anne never really conforms fully to like anything. And like she, cause she wasn't really raised religious. So she comes into the home and Marietta tries her best, but like she never seems to really 
truly fully kind of get into that. I think that there are ways in which LM Montgomery was able to kind of push the envelope a little bit on the role model front. Kate's totally right. There's just certain, there's so much that just would have gotten the book flat out not published, essentially, you know, if she had gone much further with them. Okay, that's really interesting because, well, I don't have as much historical context as either of you do. And that was something that I picked up on that, like, Anne would have been great when I was a kid to see somebody who was celebrated for being, you know, a I forget what Marilla says. It's like a flyaway, a feather brain. That's what it is. And somebody who like really appreciates all of these things that I appreciated and somebody who's celebrated for their imagination. However, I do think towards the end of the book, we see her conform a little bit more to society, not completely, but a little bit. And that was bothersome to me. And I also think I could kind of tell it was period, but there's a lot placed on people's appearances throughout the book in relation to their characters. And so Anne's appearance changes and like the adults around her notice. And it's not creepy, but in a contemporary time period, like reading it, it seems a little creepy almost. I don't know. I think at least in this period, I don't think it's great in the context of her being a role model, but it's understandable to my mind simply because so much of your success in larger society had to do with your personal presentation. And so someone growing up into a fine young lady, I think in large part had to do with your looks, you know? Yeah, I could see that. I also think too, as I read, I was a little bit bothered by how perfect Anne became. So I'm glad that you addressed that and made, so that was, that was a time period thing then. A time period thing. And I think women are not always encouraged to get into the nitty gritty depths of things where, you know, you just kind of decide that you've changed and that your, your previous faults are gone and they've washed away and you've matured. And that may not always be the case, but you decide it so, and that's all you're going to think about. So I think that might, if we wanted to get a little more real, like very realistic, like hyper-realistic in the way we view Anne, maybe that's part of it. Who knows? I think there's also something to be said about like, she becomes very dependent on the fact that she needs to become a teacher because ultimately she has no familial security. Green Gables is not going to go to her. This is her adopted family and they loved her very much and she loves them, but she has no privileged societal standing necessarily. And like the fact that she kind of needs to be viewed as somebody who can be acceptable to teach children and things like that as well. I think the thing that bothered me a lot about the perfect transformation was how quickly it happened. I think my one huge criticism of the book from a craft standpoint is that 90% of this book takes place within two years when she's 11 to when she's 13. And then the last 10% we cover like three and a half uh, years in a very short period of time. And she does a ton of changing in that period of time. She goes from being like this young kind of mistake prone child who's trying her best to be a kind of perfectly formed human. And like the only real sense of this transition we actually get is when she's talking to Marilla later and like she keeps focusing on the fact that she never makes a mistake twice so once she does it eventually she will move through all of her mistakes you know and from a craft perspective that whole last chunk of the book really didn't do it for me like I I know it's a kid's book but it needed to either be like 50 pages longer or needed to be I think reproportioned slightly just to kind of get that transformation more seamless I guess And I think if you want to talk about this story as a tale of growing up, she does most of her growing up in that short period like you're talking about. And that doesn't give a sense for a kid on how to navigate these things and how how to be in that in-between before, you know, the before picture and the after picture, what happens in the middle. And Montgomery doesn't really give you a lot to work with in that sense if you're a kid searching for that. Partially maybe because she she's an adult. <laughs> she's writing this. So maybe it depends. I think we should also maybe try to, I don't think we can ever really know, but how really is she viewing her audience is something that I would love to know whether she's, you know, actually utilizing this as a moralistic tale, which interestingly, I feel like there's a scene in which Anne says to Marilla, you know, I make a lot of mistakes, but I never make the same mistake twice. And 
I learn from each of my faults. And it's true. Each chapter is like a new thing. And each, you know, all of a sudden this sweeping transition into a young lady of 15 where she's perfect and everybody lauds her. I feel like the stories that Anne writes that always have a moral to them and everybody gets, you know, all the good people get the good stuff in the end, as you know, except for Matthew's passing. And, you know, just desserts are given and the virtuous are rewarded and it's a moral tale. That's kind of what this whole thing is as well. Oh, yeah, for sure. No, I didn't, comparing this to Little Woman, which very much is heavy on the moral tale, I had a hard time coming up with a single moral for this book. And to me, it seemed, and this is coming without like any context, because I didn't do any research into this, because I'm a shit person, but it seemed more like fantasy. Like it seemed more like if I were going to write my ideal character and what I would want for them, that would be this book. And part of that is really great. I really love that about this book. But to me, that that was part of why Anne seemed so perfect. And I also think while there were little morals, there wasn't a single big moral. Because again, and like you said, we don't really always see her learn from those mistakes to become perfect. And she only puts the moral tales in her own writing because society tells her she needs to. And I wonder if that was a trend during this time and if this book is like butting up against that. I mean, yes, historically, I would say until kind of this time period, if you were writing children's literature, you needed to have a moral. That was an established thing. I don't know, though. I, I think that I do see the moral in this story. I just think it's less specific than Little Woman, for sure. I think that what Kate's saying and what Anne says is true is that it's kind of just like about being a good person and that good people will get good things. I think the ambition thing also works into it. If you work hard, you'll get what you want sort of deal. But I do think that the moral in this one is more up for interpretation that is traditional at the time. So maybe it is in that way kind of butting against it. But that's just my take on the situation. Is Anne a good person for the time though? Because she is even as a child, she's butting up against what the other girls are supposed to be doing. We continually see her make uncharitable remarks about like certain people. That touches on something that I think is really important if we're talking about Anne as a character, but also Anne as a role model, which is something that I think we've grown way more cognizant of in the last five years or so, just socially, which is the not like other girls trope. And I think that Anne is a pretty good example of that kind of thinking. And I will be honest that as somebody who is like Anne has some aspects to my physical appearance that some might not be a big fan of, like I am a plus sized woman <laughs> and I was a plus sized kid. I've been chubby for life. That's like, so, you know, red hair being chubby. Those are things that people don't necessarily give you any, give you any slack for as a child and other things about you that are different. The ADHD characteristics, the overflowing of imagination, the somewhat, you know, lack of tact at times, the social awkwardness at times, the inability to get out of your head sometimes to see the social situation that you're in and what somebody else might do in it. Those things might, you know, make you more prone to kind of latching onto those things that make you different and making it a point of pride as a self-defense mechanism but it then again does lead you to a very dis what we now realize is a very kind of self-defeating and socially destructive thought process of I'm not like other girls and that makes me better and that makes other girls worse which is not appropriate okay yeah I could definitely see that I wonder I don't know if you would know this also you're not going to hear Maggie's voice for a little while because she's taking her dog outside but <laughs> I wonder if Ellen Montgomery shared characteristics to Anne do we know anything about that? I wonder that too. I know that she shared characteristics with Marilla in that she was a quote old maid and she died without marrying and she apparently committed suicide in fact. We don't know why but she did. And so she had a pretty isolated life and I don't know whether as a youth she demonstrated the same characteristics as Anne but that's the extent of my knowledge. Maybe she was wishing for a little girl like Anne. Yeah, that's very possible. I think the book is written that way a little, but it's also written, I think, in a way that you would might assume, rightly or wrongly, yeah, the author has some sort of inside look at this little girl's brain because the way she writes her prose is so romantical. It's so flowery. It's so elaborate. And it echoes the way that Anne speaks. And so I think that Harmony are probably right when you say that L.M. Montgomery had some sort of kind of self-insertion thing going on with her characteristics and Anne's characteristics. Okay. Because we had just talked about it a few minutes ago, before we move on to like a real topic, I want to say Anne is a fucking witch. 
Can we all just, like, agree on that? She talks to the trees. Like, she believes that they all have spirits and beings. And she's constantly questioning religion. And she's, like, you know, a weird girl. All right, for context, Harmony was a child witch. So... (laughs) She's called a witch several times. Yeah, that's true. And I think that that's just a way of being, like, mystical. I think... I mean, I did that as a child. And I, interestingly, as a teenager in an embarrassing, uninformed act of rebellion, decided I was wicked. And yeah, I'm not. <laughs> I now know I'm not, which is very cool. Um, but like, I did go and talk to trees and like climb up into them and talk to them and feel like the flowers had spirits and, you know, had like little souls of their own, things like that. So I don't know, maybe it's part witch, maybe it's part the whimsy of childhood, who knows? I think it's the whimsy, and I also know that, I mean, it was the early 1900s, so I don't think it, I think it passed by then, but there, there were a lot of, like, enlightenment thinkers and writers and things like that, that were into, uh, deism, is that what it's called? Deism. All of our forefathers were basically deists. Yeah. So, (laughs) I think that's- She gets referred to as being a witch a couple of times. I think it's, like, a romantic sort of thing, but I think that if Anne of Green Gables was in Salem- she definitely would have been burned at the stake. And I think that if she were alive and real and on Instagram, I think she'd probably she'd probably be in the witch culture that is coming to the fore, which I find interesting, like very special brand of feminism. Okay, so while you were gone, Maggie, Kate and I were talking a little bit about Anne be- not being like other girls and falling into that trope. Do you guys have anything? Do you want to say anything about that, Maggie? Because you didn't get a chance to. I mean, just that I agree about that, that I think that it's something she falls into. And I think that something that was interesting at the in the text was that it was constantly, I think I heard Kate saying when I had to get up, that the whole not like other girls thing is something that's really come, I think, to the forefront of, of feminism recently. But in the book, it's tied very much as being a religious thing in that like comparing oneself to others and comparing oneself just to, or like really even thinking about oneself in general is like a very vain thing to do. And it's implied heavily that it's not considered to be a Christian thing and that talking badly of other people also not a Christian thing. But then also, interestingly, something I thought was funny and I kind of I'm, I'm going to be bold here. Something I kind of liked was that I like liked the fact that whenever she said her mind really even if it wasn't always kind in that front there was lots of points where Morella was it like she's just saying the things that I've been thinking and I do think that there is occasionally something to that like bond between people when even if the person talking isn't saying something charitable but if they're saying something that you had niggling at the back of your head for forever it's like well at least I'm not the fucking only one you know so I think that this book kind of walks the balance with that camaraderie wrong occasionally and I think it ends up leaning too much onto the I'm not like other girls side in a lot of ways but I also think that that's kind of put on her. Matthew especially when we get his point of view worries a lot about her not fitting in with the other girls and worries that the way Morella's upbringing her is going to ostracize her and it never really seems to like she fits in well but I think that when the adults in your life are worried about that as a kid you kind of take that on a little bit yourself and you see even more the ways that you're different which I think for her is like a place where she's already she already knows it right like she she's an orphan she clearly thinks differently than everyone else even though at the time it's not named why like yeah that's my two cents on the matter yeah I think that one thing I will add to that is that there's a scene that struck me in which either Marilla or Rachel Lind who's like hilarious by the way also I want to touch on the weird incongruity of Rachel Lind not being liberal about women's education and women in professional positions and yet she is a liberal and is for women's suffrage weird and Marilla and Matthew are conservative staunchly whether or not that's really about their beliefs and it's inferred that it's not but they are staunchly and in favor of that kind of thing well before I think that would have been likely for someone of their kind of stock, I guess, as, you know, someone whose family made their home in New England for a good while, kind of like that Yankee spirit of social kind of conservatism, keep your head down, do your thing, don't get too flashy, and stick to the more traditional ways. I think that that surprised me, not in a negative way, but it just did that incongruity kind of surprised me. Back to what I was saying before, I hope I can remember. Oh, it was the scene in which Rachel and and or Marilla are talking 
about the girls as they're growing up and saying how even though Diana is such a handsome girl and, you know, she's got that fine black hair and porcelain skin and dimples and all these things, she's traditionally pretty. And next to her still manages to outshine them all with her big eyes and her unique slender face and pretty nose. And just that her otherness kind of outshone the more traditionally pretty girls that she was she had fallen in with as friends. And I thought that was a bit interesting and odd. Can I ask a question that's based off the second point that you made, Kate? So is Ellen Montgomery, this is a really basic question and Google will tell me in two seconds, but is she a Canadian author or is she an American author? Because that does, I, it's all set in Canada and I am just like, I don't really know what, the, like all of the things that I'm talking about period wise for me at the time at the very least is based on the United States. And obviously we did have very similar societies and things like that, but I don't actually know when things like women's suffrage and stuff were like huge movements in Canada, clearly at least around this time because it was mentioned in the Book, but I am curious about the education aspect and stuff too and like whether that stuff was being talked well among different groups I just don't know I know that Canada was still heavily connected with Britain at this time and that Britain was far more radical in the progressive pro-suffrage uh, movement was far more radical and earlier than in the United States in Britain so so I'm guessing that maybe that was coming up a little earlier I don't actually know a lot about the conservative and liberal parties at that time in Canada at all. <laughs> so I can't answer that question. I think Google will probably do a better job of that. I also don't know her nationality, actually, and I would guess she's Canadian. Who knows? She is. I Googled it. Thank you very much for them fact. I was just thinking, because I think sometimes it's really easy to forget that Canada they did things at a different pace so that so that sometimes when like thinking about time periods and things like that, like things could have been slightly different, even though I agree with the general point that you made there about interest. Like Rachel Lind was just an experience and really called me out right from the first page for the record i have this quote highlighted if kate is Anne, i am unfortunately i think rachel lynn yeah like let us just read the sentence for a second mrs rachel lind was one of those capable creatures who can manage their own concerns and those of other folks into the bargain like if that shit ain't me just the entire time i sat there and i was like ah shit this is the character i am in this story you know i think you should embrace it maggie be true to your Rachel Lynn self. I, I think it's baller. She's she's a bitch, but she's a baller. <laughs> like and everyone defers to her. So <laughs> she's a bitch, but she's a baller bitch. Mm-hmm. And there's something to respect in that. She's raised ten children and buried two, guys. Yeah. She has I don't particularly want to have that experience, but you know. No, we have modern medicine now. <laughs> I wanted to quickly go back to the trope of apparently and different from other girls thing because I think in modern literature or just in modern conversation in general when we see that it's meant to separate women from one another and you're, there's usually like some sort of cattiness and while we do see Anne have some sort of cattiness with other women she really is like a girl's girl and there's a lot of solidarity that we see throughout this book her friendship with Diana is really beautiful and even towards the end when she starts making other friends like she primarily makes friends with other women and supports other women. And that's why the girls like her right away. Unless you're Josie Pie. And you know what? Pie is just a pie and a pie is a bitch. True. Which is also rude. Let's talk about that also at some point, please. Josie Pie being a bitch? No, just Ellen Montgomery's thing of like, whether you're an undesirable family or an Italian, you got some characteristics that are indelible and I don't like. That, I think, feeds into her racism. Her ideas about, yeah, indelible traits. Not so good. Is she anti-Semitic? Have we figured this out yet? Because multiple, all the names Anne hates are Jewish names. I... In the book. The... Can you actually, okay, can you tell me what part of the book... Yes, here, I have it. That's in, because I recollect it, but I have different page numbers than you because I have a shitty mass market paperback okay. and you have a pretty nice version. Anne dyes her hair at one point and she sold, by, she sold hair dye from a peddler and the peddler happens to be a Jewish person who is escaping. A German Jew, yeah. This was before the Holocaust, right? 1908 is definitely before the Holocaust. Oh, uh, yes, Brendo. Okay. And we didn't start being, like, better humans until after the Holocaust, essentially? Like, the world in general? 
I mean, I think it's debatable whether we're there now, but for the sake of argument, yes. He sells her a, um, he's, he happens to be Jewish and he's like selling it so that he can get money to help his family immigrate to Canada. But also on my copy, there's an, it's a German Jew, right? But there's also like a bunch of names that she, I didn't write down the page numbers because it happened multiple instances and I'm sorry guys, but there are multiple times in which she lists names and they sound either Jewish or Polish to me. And she's like, oh, well, this is such an ugly name. Like she calls names ugly and they're like... (laughs) I don't know. I have a hard time remembering all of the different times and that may have happened. And then Marilla does not like French people. Also, she says specifically, Aunt Marilla says, quote, And Shirley, how often have I told you never to let one of those Italians in the house? I don't believe in encouraging them to come around at all. So let's just throw that tidbit in there. And also, yeah, her total dismissal of Jerry because he's French. He's French-Canadian. Not going to touch the whole politics of being French in Canada with a 10-foot pole other than to say that it's been a rough time for them, British versus French. Yeah. But yeah, she's consistently pretty uncharitable. Like she decides to use the shitty sugar that Matthew bought because he was flustered just for the hired man's porridge, which I felt was rude. You know, there's a lot of hints here. Yeah. It's never like directly stated and it's hard. Except for the Italians. Yeah. Except for the Italians thing. Oh, and also kind of calling Jerry inhuman. One time, it was early on, she was like, even Jerry shouldn't eat that or something. Oh, I think it was the pudding. Oh, the cake. And she was like, even Jerry. And I was like, oh no, Marilla. I wonder if that's more of like a class. I mean, it's probably, it's all probably tied together. I think it's both. But I personally, I got the sense that it was nationality, ethnicity related. Yeah. If you guys all have thoughts on this and you want to, like, school me on what Ella Montgomery's views were about Jewish people and people specifically, because I do think these could be Jewish names or they're Polish names. And I'm just like, regardless, why does she think all these names are? Have you found any? Have I found them? No, I'm not even trying. No, we're not going to even go there. (laughs) Because a lot of names that might be, quote, Jewish are also just simply, like, first early biblical names. I could see that. Oh, yeah, her whole tirade about Jedediah. Oh, Jedediah. That's actually, like, I associate that more with very traditional Christian, Protestant. I do, too. But that was just one that came to mind about, like, her tirade about names. Jedediah. He'd have to be a bad person. Like, girl! Again, a little girl who feels very strongly about people not judging on first impression Jedediah is all dead to me <laughs> Oof. yeah i don't know but email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com because i want to know and you forward that email to me because i don't know <laughs> then we'll all know do we want to say anything else about the possible racism in this book i didn't highlight that many. i didn't highlight a lot when i was reading this only that it is very clearly xenophobic it's clear that outsiders aren't very welcome in the insular, insular aisle of PEI. And while that's probably related to the time in which it was written and the sentiments of the author, I think it's always something we should keep in mind when we're recommending books to kids about what's acceptable and talking with them first when you can, if you're an educator or a parent. Not that I'm going to tell you what to do if you're a parent, but um, definitely as a you know public figure educator, just having a dialogue first about some of the things they'll encounter is important i'll fucking tell you what to do as a parent talk to your kids about what they're eating yeah i mean yeah i'll take the leap for you kate don't worry come at me i was like oh no (laughs) all right so i wanted to know what you guys made of Anne's ambition because for me right now i'm really suffering under capitalism (laughs) and i've decided that aren't we fucking all it sucks that my value as a person is only related to how much i can produce and how much money i can make for other people eat the rich (laughs) eat the rich that's all i have to say yeah and it's also interesting too because in addition to also like relating this character to you i also very much identified with her even today as an add person though like motivation is hard But Anne does a lot of it. She has a lot of ambition. And what do we make of that? And she ends up giving up some of her ambition. So I don't know. The concept of labor, I think, is interesting to me right now. And I saw some labor in this book and thought I'd talk about it with y'all. What do you make of the labor in this book? And the self-care thing. 
that's a big deal right now. I think taking necessary care of yourself as a person with a body that has limits is very important. But like they talk, she talks about the rhythm of the school year and how she is exhausted at the end of it. And even the doctor from far away town says that she needs to spend all the summer outside because she doesn't have a spring in her step. And oh my God, don't we all feel that way? I wish someone would just let me have summer outside the whole time. With sunscreen though. With sunscreen because gotta keep that skin. Those in layer or something. Something sciencey. Things are worse now. <laughs> Things are worse now. Things are worse over South America. That's where the ozone layer is the most depleted, I think. Can we not talk about the climate crisis? I'm really sorry. I'm so freaked out about it. It's like gonna make me cry. <laughs> and skip over that. Continue. I think that the hardworking morality of all of the, I guess, model characters, the characters that we are supposed to look up to, is a huge part of this book. And I think that part of Ella Montgomery's mission with this book is to ensure that all the little girls and boys who read this book mm-hmm. know that they need to work for their success and that they need to help with their chores <laughs> and they need to, I think, put in to expect to get back, but in a more extreme version than I think we're used to at this point. Yeah. And also to take down the boys. Can we talk about the fact that so much of this, I kind of really, it's probably bad, but I really, like, the spiteful part of me was really into the fact that Anne got so serious about school because she just wanted to fucking stick it to Gerbert Blythe. Gerbert. Gil- <laughs> Gilbert. Dude, did I say Gerbert? <laughs> Gilbert. I'm literally looking at his name right now, too. Gilbert <laughs> Blythe. I loved that. I love the spite that drove her. I know I shouldn't, but, like, it really gave me a lot of life. The slate-breaking scene is so good, and I love I've always loved it. Yeah, I, I had mixed feelings about that because I felt so bad for the poor kid and she was just so continually mean to him. Not that he should have been, like, pulling her hair. Called her carrots. Yeah. Fucking with her. Yes, but I think he deserved the years and years of hatred that came at him. No, he definitely did not. Even after he rescued her on the pile. I know. He's like, Anne, let me valiantly carry you into my boat and row you to safe harbor and she was like fuck you bitch and he was like and now i'm mad he apologized too he apologized several times and he gave her like a rose like he's constantly trying to get her attention and get her to like him i think that one thing is that i did construe as a clear flaw of Anne's that I think is a good thing because I think like we've talked about one of the problems with this book may be that she has too few flaws that are enduring and acceptable but it's that she does have that temper which hashtag relatable content but also that she is she flies off the handle and experiences regret but is too proud to actually acknowledge it and that pride i think is something that a lot of maybe may just me uh a lot of kids experience and it takes a long time for them to figure out how to talk back things that they've said and acknowledge when they've been wrong And she had such a hard time with it that she couldn't do it until she was all of 15 and had auburn hair. Yeah, oh my gosh. (laughs) The gosh, that auburn hair. Yes, okay, so that was interesting too because we are reading Little Woman at this moment and that kind of reminded me of Joe's big flaw, which is her rage. And I don't know, that was just interesting. And that's true, you're so right that kids have trouble with that. Like I have three younger siblings and that is, and I remember being a kid and that is something every single one of them struggled with, even from the get because no one ever wants to admit that they're wrong it's hard it's hard to admit that you're wrong it's one of the hardest things in life whether you're an adult or a child maybe i'm just messed up but that's how i feel no i think it definitely is i think i I think it gets easier the more you fuck up and the more you like accept humility but i do think that it's there's like this sort of embarrassment that comes with it but to go back to Anne and her ambition real quick i found it interesting in part, and maybe you two, who are both more well-versed in history than I am, can help school me on this. I haven't seen a book written from this era that depicts women studying so much. And I also wondered if maybe this was a Canadian thing. The kids going through the same sort of final progress, the finals and things, essentially, that we went through when we were in high school. And the stress levels that come with academia was something I found out of place for a book 
of this time period, especially one about a woman. I can't speak to that because I haven't read enough books from this period to really talk about it thoughtfully. Okay. I'm with Kate. While I think I am very well versed in books of this time period because it was my specialty for a while, I not children's literature, not anything to do with children's literature. And I think that in books geared towards adult, I think even more at this time than today, if you were writing a book for adults, you were writing about adults, where like academic stress and that kind of thing wouldn't necessarily come into it. And I think also a trend at that time was you were either focused on like the really, really rich whose studies would have been, you know, with the governess and stuff, but also behind them, or you were focusing on people who were so ingrained in poverty and in the like lower and working class that like they wouldn't have had the chance for school so I agree with you that like from what what I've read it's an anomaly but I can't actually say if it's an anomaly if that makes sense it's possible that children's literature about children aimed for kids does deal more with that I just have no experience with that age group in this in this time period making a totally uninformed statement I would agree with Maggie that it's seems like a lot of books didn't talk about that I know of definitely didn't talk about the experience of the lower the lower middle class it was either you were destitute or you were wealthy or you were kind of merchant class <laughs> I guess in which you were upper middle class but this kind of middle ground I've never seen anywhere else maybe I'm just not well read enough not in this context at least I think that you can make an argument that some of the kind of manifest destiny literature where you were talking about farmers out west sort of deal probably dealt with that but like because they were so far removed from quote-unquote society at the time like it was a whole different ball game if you're going to be talking about school and stuff you know and this is also on Prince Edward Island and Prince Edward, Edward Island is a de- an island so they have different resources than I think maybe I hypothesize that some of the kids on the mainland might have experienced too. So maybe a little different, maybe not. I don't know if Ellen Montgomery, in fact, lived on PEI. So maybe she's actually, her account is more representative of mainland education. Who knows? I think she did. I looked up a brief biography of her while I was, while we were looking at this. And I think she did. She definitely lived on Nova Scotia for a while. And she was also a school teacher before she wrote this. So the mysteries unfold. (laughs) Wow. It's almost like her life bleeds heavily into her work. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I found it kind of depressing because I keep yearning for the good old days when not everyone had to work their asses off all the time to live. But like, look, even school children and children's literature from the 1900s are doing it. So yeah, that's really sad. Well, it's still not the same young people eat young people like cutthroat competition now that more fields than ever are professionalized. So you need to then compete more for jobs in them. But I would agree that it's been a certain amount of struggle and a certain amount of hustle um <laughs> uh has always been an like an important part of people's lives i hate it i want the struggle to go away i'm ready to eat the rich you've heard it here first universal income come at me okay i also want to know why the book chooses we've talked about this essentially skirted around it why the book chooses to make Anne pretty towards the end and why we focus so much on her looks I don't understand. I actually really wish. Obviously, she probably wasn't ugly to begin with. We all know now that redheads are hotties and things like that don't really matter and beauty is subjective. Can I say, this was maybe the book that convinced me as a youngin that I wanted red hair, beautiful, long, fiery, and that I wanted to be teeny tiny in terms of figure. I mean, that also comes from being, you know, growing, coming up as a chubby kid. Aww. I'm sure that had something to do with it, but like, Anne was mwah, chef's kiss. The thing that I wanted to be in terms of my physical appearance. But she didn't like it because when she was teeny tiny, they even describe like the girls that are quote unquote plump are like beautiful. Mm. Although plump is not what we would call plump now, I think. Like, Rachel Lind is an old, heavier lady, and she describes herself as 200 pounds. And that's not that heavy. Yeah. So I think that when they talk about dimples, they mean simply that you have a little meat on your bones. You're like maybe a size 10. Max, you know. I think it's also important to note that that's a really common trope in works of this time period is to have the main character be 
quote unquote unattractively skinny, but in actuality they become the most beautiful character in part because they're super skinny. So Anne doesn't like it, and I think that that's a common thing. But that's annoying. I just wish that she could have been more average looking, or that like I think what we do know that there are other books in this series, and I assume I don't know because I haven't read, but I assume Anne and Gilbert end up getting together, and that's what they're priming her for, and that's why they have to make her pretty. But like it would have been a better story to me if she had just remained quote unquote plain and still have had success and still have had boys like her because she's weird and like they appreciate that yeah because they talk about plain Jane Andrews and how painfully plain she is but she did great in home economics and now will be a teacher and it's like well isn't that isn't that success but it's not success enough to be a main character and to be admired she's still you know and that's a that's an issue I guess yeah I don't know it just bothered me how much appearance was a thing and I really appreciated in the beginning that like because it wasn't just coming from Anne like other people thought she wasn't pretty yeah everybody was like you are a mess (laughs) and none of us think you're attractive and that's a hard thing for a kid but yeah and then she yeah it's really awful but it was relatable (laughs) <laughs> the most relatable thing about her. <laughs> and I think that it is a problem that she becomes less relatable and more aspirational in a in a potentially unattainable way as she grows older. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. All right. We have Maggie's questions. You want to hit those, Mags? Yeah, I think that my last one actually really relates to what we've been talking about, which is that this book, especially in the first half of it is really obsessed with the body they use that phrase over and over and over again i actually highlighted the first like dozen of them and then got bored (laughs) but let me let me pull out some choice examples shall i so it starts by saying on in my edition page two a body can get used to anything even being hanged as the irish man said and it just keeps going from there about like what a body can endure page four and as And as for the risk, there's risks in pretty near everything a body does in this world. There's a very clear separation in this story between the body and the soul, kind of, which I thought was really interesting, and what the body can endure versus what the soul can endure. And it doesn't go super into it, I think, because it's a kid's book. But, like, they make a lot of explicit statements about what a body can do. And then there's Anne, who is less practical and very much more concerned about with not even her soul, I think, because I think that has two religious contexts in that but like what her mind can do for her right and I think that Anne uses the mind as a way to kind of escape the body probably largely because of all of the things we were just talking about with this huge focus and criticism on her looks and on everyone else's looks and all of that stuff but I found it really weird I guess because they kept using the specific phrase a body and I wanted to get I don't know if anyone else noticed that or if anyone else had thoughts about that, but the phrase a body came up at least a dozen times in the first 44 pages after that I got bored of counting. That's wild that you persisted that long and I admire you. I think for me, I totally didn't notice this phenomenon in the same way because I had assumed that a body was a kind of more accessible folksy dialectic way of referring to just a person you know in a more generalistic way so like a person could get you know a person can get used to anything including being hanged you know and so I had never thought about it in that way but you might be right and I feel like I've heard it in other texts but perhaps she's also using it differently in this text than I've experienced elsewhere I think it stuck out to me because there's very little other kind of folksy slang like you're talking about so to me this one felt very specifically kind of placed in the text, if that makes sense. Especially because as the text goes on, it gets used less and less. Like what the body can endure becomes less of the focus of it as Anne's prettiness kind of like increases. That's interesting. I think that the exposition of the author also decreases though as as time goes on. And so there's less place for that language. True, but a lot of that was not an exposition. It was in dialogue. Both of those examples I read were dialogue. Oh, yeah. The only other folksiness I can remember is Marilla and Matthew and Rachel saying ain't. 
and that's kind of it. So you're right that it's limited. I don't, I just, I, yeah, you're, I never thought about it that way. And I think you may be onto something. How many did you notice it? I didn't notice it. I'm trying to think about what the relationship could be. I think that you're right to maybe think that it has something to do with the body and the soul and that being a difference because that is a trend that we've seen in literature before. And there, and especially with Anne's characteristics, like Maggie said. Yeah. It's something that, a stark difference that I think would be pretty clear to the reader. Yeah. Especially. Their focus on the body and focus on the mind. Oh, yeah. Because Anne does exist mostly in her mind. Because her body is not satisfactory to her. Nor anyone else at the beginning. And also, this could be me, like, reading, watching too much Anne with an E, which is a fabulous show that everyone should watch. Um, It is good. There's some issues that I find with it now that I've reread this, but yeah. Yeah, it's not completely faithful. (laughs) But... Yeah, and teaching Jerry how to read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I like that, because then we get a better version of Jerry, instead of just, like, him not being a character. But anyway, I wonder if... And we do see in the book hints of Anne's abuse, and so that could cause a person to dissociate, and Anne does kind of sometimes have dissociative behaviors, and that's really played out more in the show, but it does kind of exist in the text and it's hinted at. So I wonder if that separation exists because of that too, because she's naturally more dissociative. That's something I never would have thought of and it's an excellent point. And I have watched Amethyst, so well done. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I I agree. So the last question I guess is kind of a it's kind of a positive note to end on. I guess I wanted to get everyone's take on what this book says about family because I think that ultimately this book is about Anne, but it, it is a book about family and kind of making and building your own family. And I just wanted to hear everyone's take about what we took away about family from this one. Aww. Hmm. What am I taking away from family? I mean, in the book you get you definitely can build your own family and I think that's really beautiful. And I don't know if this is exactly a take on the family, but I really enjoyed the depiction of Matthew and Marilla as two different sides of Anne's parenting. Because Matthew was kind of her friend and like gave her the more affection that she needed. But I think that someone like Anne really did need Marilla there to be like, hey, I know you like to daydream, but I need you to pay attention to what's going on right now and be here in the world with me. I really appreciated that. I will think more about my take on family if anyone else wants to go. Yeah, I think that also, for me at least, I found the Matthew Marilla brother-sister pairing as opposed to husband-wife pairing pretty interesting. It's not something that you see in literature almost ever today. Then I think more often, I remember it cropping up in some Dickens novels, and I think it's maybe in some ways used to emphasize a person's potentially isolation from society because being an old maid or an old bachelor is something that that hints that you've missed this big part of life at that time. So I found it interesting, but I also found it made the family dynamic more interesting and also in some ways more touching. I'm not sure why, but it was just seeing their relationship was pretty um drew my attention for sure and the way that they as Harmony said were a two-sided coin when it came to parenting was pretty excellent yeah I appreciated that too that they were brother and sister I wonder if the book itself is trying to like push people away from bachelorhood or, or saying that like you do need some sort of child in your life I don't think that would be what it's saying because they are both bachelors and they do make their own family successfully However, I think you're right about that because there are multiple times where both old maids in the book, so Miss Barry and Marilla, both have moments of physical closeness and comfort with Anne where she's, you know, showing how much she cares about them and she gives them a hug and she gives them a kiss on the cheek and they, you know, are struck with this maternal love and desire to keep this girl in their lives. And that's something that I think smacks of kind of moralism and is something that seems like it's trying to tell you something. But at the same time, the way that they depict Marilla and Matthew as not as outsiders yet still good people who are doing good things for Anne leads me to believe that it's not just one or the other. It's a little bit of both. Trying to humanize those people who are on the outskirts and trying to demonstrate the value of maternal and paternal relationships. 
What did you think about family, Maggie? I think I felt conflicted about it for exactly that reason, just because I do think that they were kind of pushing the idea that you can't be a complete person without romance and some kind of relationship, like close relationship with a child in your life in a familial way. And I felt kind of conflicted about that because I don't think that that's true. (laughs) I think that there are plenty of people out there who can be perfectly happy as single people without kids, even as a married couple or just a couple without kids. I think that... All of those are perfectly valid life choices. But something I did appreciate about the dynamic of it was the fact, I think kind of like Harmony was saying, that both Matthew and Marilla really understood Anne and her needs in unique ways. And they both in that way really participated in her bringing up, even though Matthew was supposedly kind of separate from from that whole process. And I think I also really enjoyed the fact that just because Anne was adopted didn't make them less of a family and just because they were a non-traditional family and like very non-traditional for this time didn't make them less of a family they weren't ostracized for it and was really able to bring them into the fold like Kate was saying and so I really appreciated that aspect having maternal or paternal feelings doesn't necessarily mean that like you pushed something out of your vagina right it means that you have taken on the role of caretaker in someone's life and have decided that you are in it for the long haul with them. At the end of the day, that's what matters about family. And that was a lesson. I mean, I guess like that was a moral of the story, but I think that it's one that's still applicable today and one that I also like appreciated as a reader, If even if I wasn't totally in agreement with the other morals about family. I think it also comes into an interesting convergence with ideas about sacrifice and duty at the end because she makes a decision to forfeit her full ride to Redmond and to take up a position of caretaker in some ways for Marilla and to totally change the course of her life potentially and that's depicted as something that she should do and something that's the right choice I think everyone probably has different feelings about whether they were, you know, if they were in that position. But I think it says a lot about Montgomery's ideas about how one should participate in a family when you're starting to take on adult responsibilities, like Anne is at the end of the book. But she also doesn't completely give up her dreams, right? She's still taking college courses. So I think that's also really important, especially because this is Canada and not America. And most of my knowledge is within the American realm. But this is not a time period where there were a lot of options, especially for women. And so she's keeping her ambition while also taking on duties to her family. And I also think that it doesn't, it's important that I feel like it it wasn't seen as a struggle because I think that it's kind of hinted at that Anne really did love Green Gables and she didn't want to leave it. And, you know, if she'd gone on to college, her old enemy wouldn't be there. So they couldn't have fought in the same way. So I think she would have been fine going off into college and happy with that. But this is also seen like her, her world isn't over and it's kind of implied that she's still going to go on and ha- accomplish these dreams. Yeah, they definitely talk about that when she mentions, oh, even if I don't pass my geometry, test the sun will rise again as mrs lynn says even though i wish it maybe it wouldn't i think it maybe does inject a certain level of instructing the reader to maintain you know stick to itiveness i hate that word but there you go i used it that you should persevere and continue to just kind of buck up and continue to pursue what you need to do even in the face of different circumstances because of course sitting in the gable and taking a correspondence course as opposed to sitting in a classroom far away, and also accelerating her studies. Those are different things, but you're right that she's still able, she's able to do a good thing for her community, fill a role she's always wanted, take care of Marilla, and get the education, ultimately, that she wants, presumably. I think we're also leaving a major point out of this part of the conversation, though, which is that Anne is grieving just as much as Marilla is, and probably would really emotionally benefit. I guess I didn't view it as so much of a sacrifice, because she's going to be able to rebuild this part of her life in the place that is still familiar with her other parental figure. Yes, I did obviously recognize that it was a sacrifice for her to give up her scholarship and stuff, But I think that the end of the book and and a flaw I found with it was that we don't really see Anne's grief for Matthew. It gets very much 
focused on Marilla, even though we're told that Anna's really grieving. And I think that the idea of taking the time that you need in order to grieve the loss of a parental figure, even if it means kind of taking a non-traditional course to kind of achieve your dreams, while it could be sacrifice, I think I read it much more as like a, a healthy way to cope with really an intense grief and major change. And I think that is compounded with the fact that if she had continued to do that, she also would have lost the Green Gables, which is the only home she's ever known. And I feel like that would have been a double grief that she would have been just completely ill-equipped to handle. You brought up some excellent points that I didn't fully internalize. They talk, they, you're right, that they do just kind of brush over And they talk about how she comes out of the grieving process and that it does fade, but they don't get into it. And they don't really talk explicitly about the fact that it did factor into her decision-making process. And maybe kids are more perceptive than me and they just pick that up as a major part of her decision-making, but maybe not. I think that it wasn't supposed to seem like a big sacrifice. It's hinted at that other people think it was a big sacrifice, but at the end of the day, the book basically skims over that and states that this wasn't a hard sacrifice by the time that Anne made the decision. I think it is telling that Gilbert did indeed make a sacrifice, however, in some way for Anne, and that it's implied that at some point they will ultimately be family as well. They're totally going to and I'm like they're children so I feel weird but like I kind of want it you know no me too I kind of ship them (laughs) from the moment the slate cracked over the head I was like that toxic trope of hate you love you is coming in strong and my brain has been wired my brain has been wired to want this so here we go yeah oh boy okay let's talk about homework what is our homework for this book i'm gonna pay more attention to trees because i live in new york city and there aren't enough and i'm going to uh go out to more botanical gardens and parks and things because i need that in my life because i miss the goddamn trees maggie what's your homework i'm gonna stop punishing myself for daydreaming so much i think that being able to have a nice space inside of your head where like life is just idyllic is important in the face of the climate apocalypse so like i'm just gonna let it happen Catherine, i'm gonna move to prince edward island and wash my hands of all this american filth just kidding we're ready we'll do it with you but no yeah and i think my other homework is much like yours to continue to be outside more to maybe not even just like be outside but like go hike go frolic in the ferns. I think that sounds like a great plan to me. Watch out for ticks. Yeah, that's the one thing. I kept thinking about that. No joke. I was like, man, if I could just go and frolic in the glen and not have to worry about Lyme disease or Rocky Mountain tick meat sickness nonsense. Thank you. All right. I wish. We all wish. Yes. What is everybody reading right now? I am reading the uh, Mistborn series at my friend's behest because... Oh, Maggie is having a conniption right now. Um, How you feel about this, Mag? I fucking love Brandon Sanderson. So yeah, I'm reading Miss Bourne. Andrew made me do it. And now Maggie's also making me do it. So I just made my dad read it. It's the one of the only series Dee Dee and I have both oh. read it together. Dee Dee got me into it, which is how you know it's good. <laughs> I'm in between things right now. I think the next thing I'm going to read is going to be a reread, which is going to be Night Film by Marisha Pessel, because it's just the perfect spoopy Halloween book. So we're going with that. Harmony, what are you reading? Are you ready? I need a drum roll. A drum roll. Roll. I am reading Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, but not really this week because I'm ready enough Green Gables. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> that was for my Harmony, the people are going to have a stroke when you finally stop reading that book for the podcast. Yeah, I'm all about the old ass books right now. Except that's not really an old ass book. <laughs> Okay, ready? So I think we're done now, everyone. Anyone want to say anything else? I love Anne of Green Gables. I love Kate and Maggie. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening to Rebel Girls Book Club. We'll be back with you next week with yet another episode about Little Women. When will it fucking end? Talk to y'all later. You can follow us at Rebel Girls Book Club on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Days. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Oh, all the